This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. you might be. Good day. If you happen to be listening to this broadcast under the light of the sun, this is Radio Orbit, and you're listening to it on KOPN 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio. It's your station. It's listener-sponsored radio, your imagination station, KOPN. 89.5 FM, serving Columbia and lots of areas around mid-Missouri. And uh, getting to Radio Orbit listeners all across the planet over the Internet. 
So, uh, this is Mike Hagan. I'm your host, as always, every Sunday morning from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. on Radio Orbit. And uh, tonight, here it is once again. Here we go. And uh, we have a cool show tonight. George Erickson, an expert on the mythological and realistic concept of Atlantis. And uh, we talked to George Erickson just a couple of weeks ago and did a real cool interview with George uh, uh, talking about Atlantis and uh, the mythology and uh, the reality of that historical name that we all know about. We've all heard about it, and, we all, and Disney makes movies about it. And, uh, and it's sort of this thing that floats around in our collective subconscious and, 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 and as a historical uh, uh, sort of uh, figure, but... But we don't uh, we don't think too much about it as as far as what it really might have meant. And uh, it turns out that uh, Atlantis probably was a real place at one time. Plato certainly thought uh, thought so. And uh, uh, George Erickson is a guy that talks about all this stuff. He's an anthropologist and a paleontologist and a guy who's done a tremendous amount of research in this area. And uh, tonight uh, we'll listen to an interview that I did with George just about two weeks ago uh, talking about Atlantis and the connection to Atlantis and the Americas and the Mayan civilization actually so that's coming up in just a little while uh, uh, George as a matter of fact I better mention this now that uh, uh, George has a, a special that's going to be on the History Channel tomorrow night and uh, you can check your local listings I, I think here in Columbia it will be nine o'clock central time on the history channel but uh check your tv guide for this uh, just to make sure but anyway uh, there's a show that's going to be called the lost atlantis and uh, this features uh george erickson and some of the ideas and uh, theories that he is uh, pushing forward and it'll be a real interesting program especially if you listen to the show tonight if you hear this show tonight um tomorrow's program on the history channel might be uh, a little bit more interesting for you because um, you'll have the benefit of the background of this program. And on the History Channel, I imagine they'll give uh, George, of course, uh, I haven't seen the show yet, and neither has George, as a matter of fact, but uh, uh, the odds are they'll give him 10 or 15 minutes maximum um, what uh, uh, the eventual program is edited down to uh, There'll be a number of different uh, uh, views and different uh, uh, viewpoints um, presented there. Uh, so George's will probably get 10, 15 minutes max. And uh, we, we did, uh, I did a two-hour interview with him, uh, which you're going to hear here in just about 45 minutes. So uh, we covered quite a bit in two hours and um, a lot more that, than, than will be covered in the program tomorrow. So anyway, uh, listen uh, in, stick around tonight, and uh, we'll talk to George Erickson, and we'll be talking about Atlantis. And uh, if you happen to fall asleep and can't stick around for the whole program tonight, make sure you tune in to the History Channel tomorrow at 9 o'clock, I think it is, here in Missouri. Uh, if not, just check your, uh, check your local listings, as it were, and look for uh, a show called The Lost Atlantis, and you'll see that tomorrow night, Monday night, on the History Channel. So cool. So we got George on tonight, and then uh, his program will be on the television tomorrow night. So that's coming up tonight. Uh, a quick thank you to Gail, 
always doing wonderful stuff on Heart and Soul for a few hours before Radio Orbit, and uh, tonight no different. Gail uh, spinning some awesome stuff, as she always does, and I know you appreciate Gail, and I hope you appreciate uh, some of this show, too. So, Anyway, thanks, Gail. Hope you uh, stick around and listen to the program. Uh, everybody else listening, uh, thanks. And uh, to those people who eventually are listening over the web, thank you for that as well. Thank you to all the people who have sent emails. And uh, it means a whole lot to me. I got some great responses from the Royal Raymond Rife show, which we did last week. turns out that that was something that was uh, 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 really struck a chord with lots of different people. And uh, they made it known to me. And I appreciate that more than anything is when... Uh, people contact me and tell me, hey, I appreciate uh, what you did. I appreciate the information uh, that you uh, uh, presented. And uh, and not only that, I'm not just looking for gratuity. Uh, I also appreciate uh, comments of criticism, whatever. I want to know uh, what the people think who are listening to this program so if you are listening to the program give me a call uh, send me an email go to the website send me a message from there whatever uh, let me know what you think let me let me know uh, where you think the program should go and uh, I'm not, and and I'll, I'll I'll take all that stuff in and and try to uh, uh, incorporate it into the future of this program uh, and it means a great deal to me to uh, to know what the people out there that are listening to the show are thinking. So uh, have no fear and uh, don't think you're wasting my time or your time or anything like that. Uh, be sure to send me a note, give me a call, whatever, and let me know what you think because uh, it uh, means a lot to me and, uh, and I think it's actually important. Now, uh, with that in mind, KOPN is a community radio station and uh, we are listener-supported, listener-sponsored. We are commercial-free, as anybody who listens to the show appreciates. And uh, we take our cues from you. The bottom line is the community around here supports the show and the station, and uh, the money that is donated by you guys, the listeners, keeps this place running. So... Uh, this isn't actually a pledge drive pitch, although it may sound as such. Um, it's a pitch to get you to actually come and get involved. Uh, we, we're, we've, we're in the process of planning a bunch of focus groups and uh, long-range planning uh, meetings and groups to talk about this sort of stuff because we want to make sure that the station is moving in the right direction, that it has the best interests of the community in mind, and that's you guys. So uh, so we need your opinions, we need your ideas, we need your input, and with that in mind, uh, next Saturday, ah, I take that back, next Thursday, the 10th of March, at 6 p.m., uh, we'll be holding a focus group here at the station, 915 East Broadway, right downtown Columbia, 6 o'clock p.m. Uh, I'll be here moderating the thing, and there'll be a few other uh, uh, 
guys and girls that uh, work down here at the station. But the bottom line is we're trying to get anybody uh, out there from the public, whether you're a listener, uh, whether you're a fan, whether you're not, uh, regardless, we're trying to get uh, people to come in here, spend an hour or so with us, give your opinions, give your ideas, and we will take all that information and uh, throw it into the big bin, grind it up, and uh, it will become uh, a factor in the future of this radio station. So if you have an interest in that, uh, come, come down, <clears throat> come down to the uh, uh, to the meeting that we're going to have next Thursday. It's March 10th at six o'clock, and I'll be here, and we'll have a good time. It won't be uh, anything uh, that's difficult. It'll be fun, and we can go out afterwards and uh, have a drink or whatever, and talk and do the things that we should be doing in order to promote community and communication. The roots of those words being the same. And uh, that's what's important and that's what we're interested in doing here is, uh, is providing a service and a value and a benefit to the community. And so if you want to be a part of that, uh, come on down next Thursday, okay? On the 10th, 6 o'clock... PM. If you want more information, email me at orbitradio at aol.com. That's O R B I T R A D I O at aol.com. Uh, or call the station 573-874-1139 or 573-874-5676. And uh, get involved. Right? It's your station. And uh, if you don't like it, uh, if you don't like what you hear and you don't get involved and tell us what your ideas are, well, then don't bitch uh, when you don't like what you hear, okay? All right, uh, thanks to everybody, as I said before, for the support. The Royal Raymond Rife Show went over really well, a lot of interest, and I really want to promote that show in the medical community. Uh, it's important. Uh, it's important to everybody to understand the history of this stuff and what has happened. And... Uh, Anybody who's interested in this stuff, if you're a medical student, if you're not a medical student, if you're just uh, somebody who happened to listen to the program and is interested, call me, email me. I will send you a copy of the program. I'll burn it onto a CD uh, pro bono. It, it won't cost you anything. I'll give it to you. Uh, just let me know. Uh, again, the number is 874-5676. That's area code 573. Or you can... Uh, you can always email me at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com, and uh, I'll, uh, uh, I'll do my best to get back to you. And I promise, if you want a copy of that program from last week, I will send it to you. Okay? Um, the email address, uh, you know what? I just said it. I'll say it one more time, orbitradio at AOL.com. The website, www dot radioorbit.com r-a-d-i-o-r-b-i-t dot com just one o in the middle there and the phone numbers 1-800-895-5676 if you're outside of the 573 area code if you're not if you're here in Columbia or the general vicinity call me at 573-874-5676 tonight we'll be talking uh, with George Erickson 
about Atlantis. And uh, next week, we won't be talking to him. Uh, we'll be talking with Rick Strassman, the author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule. Another fascinating subject and topic. Uh, one of my... Uh, uh, one of my favorite, actually. And uh, Rick and I talked about a week and a half ago, and we're going to air that interview next week. Uh, Dr. Michael Heisen, the Ph.D. marine biologist from Hawaii, the Sirius Institute. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Heisen's work. He's been on the program before. We'll be talking to him uh, and Paradise in probably just a month and a half or so. Uh, Stephen Buner, author of the Lost Language of Plants is going to be on the program in just a few weeks. Steve and I have been talking over the last few days, so we've got a bunch of real cool stuff coming up. Uh, Cheryl Clapton in two weeks. Ed Edwards. Now, this is a guy. All right. Now, this is a classic. I, 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 I should play some music right now, but Ed Edwards. Wait till this guy gets on the show. You're not going to freaking believe it, okay? Um his nickname is Shu. We call, those of us who know him, we call him Shu, just like the thing you were, you're wearing on your feet right now. But his real name is Ed Edwards, uh, but we call him Shu. So Shu is an amazing dude. And there was a movie that was made a number of years ago. It was called Phenomenon, and it starred... John Travolta, if I remember correctly. And uh, that movie was a fictional film. But as art reflects life, it turns out that that film was actually sort of a true story in the fact that Ed Edwards' life has, in, great, uh, in a great way, uh, done the same thing as what happened in that movie. Uh, he's a guy who has abilities and talents that are, well, they're not supposed to be real. Uh, it's another one of these things that is not supposed to be real, but is. And again, I have personal experience with Shu, and I know him, and uh, I know he's not a huckster. And I know he's not selling books. And uh, I know he's just trying to do his thing. And when he comes on the program, he's going to do his thing. And hopefully we can actually do some interaction that night because she was very interested in energy phenomenon and the sharing and distribution of energy phenomenon between people and things. And he's quite capable of... Uh, uh, of of uh, making this sort of idea manifest. He can do it, and uh, he can make you feel it. And so uh, so I urge all of you to, uh, to listen for that show and uh, call in that night and talk to us because it's going to be unbelievable. And Ed Edwards will be on the air in probably uh, about... A month, probably three or four weeks from now, um, we have to work some things out uh, just to get the date right. But that's going to be a great show, and I think it will be really interesting for uh, for everybody because this is a guy who's not talking about ideas. 
uh, and things. He's actually doing things. I mean, these are things that you can actually feel in your own, uh, your bones and your heart and your hands and your hair. And uh, Shu will make you feel it, trust me. The guy is astounding. And when we do this show, uh, I hope that uh, you guys will all uh, participate in it, okay? So that's coming up in just a few weeks. Okay, it is Women's History Month as well. And uh, we're going to be featuring lots of different girls playing music this month. And uh, tonight we're going to start that off. So let's take a break here, and we'll be back in just a few minutes uh, to do space weather. And i got a couple stories I want to tell you about before we do that uh, George Erickson interview. In the meantime, let's uh, just chill out, kick back for a minute. This is uh, compliments of my good friend Casey Oleonic, Big Mama Thornton from Stronger Than Dirt. This is called Let's Go Get Stoned. You know my baby He won't let me in And buy some granddad and some gin. Come on, buddy. I need all that telephone. And tell him I got to go get stone. You know I work so hard. All day long. See you,
Let's all go get stoned. Big Mama Thornton from Stronger Than Dirt. Thanks to Casey for that one. It was a great choice. So, All right, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And uh, we're going to be talking to George Erickson in just a little while about Atlantis. And in the meantime, we've got a few things I want to uh, talk to you all about. First, let's do space weather. Not a whole lot to talk about. The... Uh, the sun has been relatively quiet for the last few days and no major flare activity or likelihood of any major flare activity right now. we got a pretty quiet situation on Old Soul and although there were some really strange uh, incidents that happened uh, over the last week or so, right around the time of that alignment that Kent told us about two weeks ago, the so-called um, uh, the Cup and the Grail, alignment that Kent talked about and there were some really weird things that happened uh, for a few days and most of that stuff, not most of it all of it, you can go see for yourself uh, the archives of all that stuff are up on the web at uh, Kent's, uh, Kent Stedman's website and that's www.cyberspaceorbit.com and uh, Kent covers all that stuff uh, with regard to the sun pretty pretty thoroughly so if you're interested in this stuff, uh, on these weeks when, when when we don't talk about it real thoroughly, just go to Kent's uh, just go to Kent's site, go to cyberspaceorbit.com, and uh, you can find all this information there. Okay, um, the sun has done sort of an interesting thing though in the last few days. We got a, quite a big coronal hole that's that sped up the um, uh, the solar wind quite a bit, so you're going to get pretty decent auroral activity for the next phase up in the northern latitudes, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, the solar wind, I don't know, right now, maybe five, 600 kilometers per second, something like that, but anyway, uh, keep an eye out up north. Aurora should be cool in the next few days. There is a, uh, a spacecraft that's called Rosetta that is supposed to go and land on a comet. And uh, Rosetta, just a few days ago, had, a, had an Earth flyby, came really close to the planet, uh, maybe about 1,000 miles, 1,200 miles or so. And uh, it was... The reason that Rosetta did this, is, it's something that's called a gravity assist. Uh, they designed this uh, the maneuver where the spacecraft is launched out into space and then uh, over a certain amount of time comes back around uh, the Earth as a certain orbital around the Earth 
and the, and and uh, the earth is used uh, as sort of a a slingshot. This is the metaphor that's usually used, and it's a pretty good one actually. And uh, the object is drawn in from the magnetic pull of the planet. And if it's not completely caught in the magnetic pull, it won't it won't actually go into orbit. What it will do is is accelerate and accelerate and accelerate as it approaches, and then it will whip around and then come blasting out the other side, actually faster than it came in. And uh, they call this gravity assist. And uh, it's actually a pretty astounding thing when it comes to celestial mechanics and the mathematics that are involved uh, to actually uh, work this right so that it comes off at the right angle, the right velocity, the right time, the right place in space and time uh, where its eventual destination will, uh, will be correct. So anyway, this is going on right now. It just happened a couple of days ago, and there was some great imagery uh, of, uh, uh, of Rosetta as it blew by the Earth. Uh, there were some really cool uh, uh, telescopic photographs that were taken, and uh, you can check that stuff, uh, stuff out over at Kent's site as well. And, you know, another, another great site for this stuff is called Space Weather. I do uh, this segment every week that we call Space Weather, uh, but there's actually a website. It's called spaceweather.com, and uh, if you go there, you can check out some of this stuff, and they have a lot of information about some of these uh, these phenomena that happen in the in the, the skies above our heads. So uh, this thing, uh, Rosetta, it's a wild story, actually. Uh, it, it's, uh, its objective is to rendezvous with this comet, and it's a, a comet that was discovered by some Russians a few years ago, but uh, I forget the name of it, um, uh, 67P, I want to say, but I forget the Russians' names that were associated with it, but uh, at any rate, this, uh, this probe, Rosetta, is supposed to study the nucleus of this comet, and... Uh, it's supposed to look at the comet in great detail, and it's also actually supposed to launch uh, a probe and uh, and land a probe on the surface of that comet and uh, and send back what would uh, apparently be really interesting information. So uh, anyway, that's going on right now. Um, there is I don't have any particular. Uh, information to, to bring forward right now about near-Earth asteroids or uh, near-Earth objects or any of the uh, those things that we might get concerned about that might be approaching our planet and with the uh, potential to smash into it. Of course, I say every week that the ones that we know about aren't the ones to worry about. The ones that we don't know about are the ones that are probably going to cause the biggest problem. But... Uh, uh, no real reason to talk about that stuff because if you don't know about it, well, ignorance is bliss. This is one case where I guess I agree with that statement. You know, there was a, um, speaking of ignorance and bliss, there was a program on the television about a week and a half ago, and it was uh, on ABC. It was a big production. And uh, Peter Jennings, the anchor for ABC News, did a show on UFOs and uh, the whole idea of uh, extraterrestrial visitation and contact and abduction and all these different ideas. 
And, uh, well, you know, quite frankly, uh, going into it, I pretty much assumed that it would be uh, a propaganda piece. Uh, And I was proven correct. Uh, It made me really think about something. There was a lot of stuff that was written about it afterwards. And, in fact, a lot of the people that are prominent um, researchers in the UFO and in the, uh, uh, the abductee community were sort of prepared for it to be exactly what it was, uh, a, a propaganda piece. And a lot of these guys, Bud Hopkins and, um, oh, uh, a number of other people, but in particular, the piece that he wrote, uh, which is posted over there at uh, Jeff Rents' website right now, over at Rents.com, R-E-N-S-E dot com. Uh, Bud really, really nailed it. But the bottom line was uh, that for the nth time, the phenomenon has been marginalized and uh, reduced to either simple medical explanation, i.e. sleep paralysis and this sort of thing, or delusion. And uh, the it's pretty interesting when these sorts of things happen because um, they tend to send the same message out through the television, through the radio, through the print media at the same time. It's sort of an assault. And uh, it's a, it's, it was pioneered at Stanford Research Institute in the 60s and the 70s, and the name that was given to it was social engineering. The bottom line, the simple definition is how to change your mind, how to make you think in this way or that way. That's what social engineering is. And it's been an art that has been uh, refined and perfected for many years now. And these guys are pros. Don't, uh, don't, 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 don't kid yourself. These guys are pros. And uh, this Peter Jennings UFO piece was a perfect example of one of these con artist pieces. And there's a corresponding piece that was written in uh, uh, the UK Guardian. And like I said, they they tend to release these things uh, uh, multifacetedly in a a, a three-pronged, assault, as it were, through video and audio and print. And um, there was an article called, Are There Really Little Green Men? And it talks about um, aliens and what might really be going on. And it basically is just a, um, a print representation of the Peter Jennings special that happened a few days earlier. And my position on all of this is this. I don't think that the UFOs and the alien phenomenon in and of itself 
is the important thing. I don't think who they are and where they're from is that important. I think the important thing that Peter Jennings neglected to look at and that most UFO and alien researchers neglect to look at is not what is happening and who are they and where are they from? What are they doing? The real question is what effect are they having on us? What is the phenomenon doing to humankind? And I think the answer to that is they are eroding faith in science. They are an antidote to the scientific, rationalist, existentialist, reductionist, positivist nightmare that has been jammed down our collective throats for the last 400 years. And the UFOs represent the way out, regardless of what they really are. What they are doing is eroding our faith in science. And uh, that's exactly what's required right now, I think. So, at any rate, we'll be back in a few minutes. i got a few more things to talk about, and uh, then we'll come back with... George Erickson, and we'll be talking about Atlantis. And you're listening to Radio Orbit. This is KOPN. This is Mike Hagan, and we'll be back in just a minute. Stick around. Thank you. 
This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. Thanks to Ralph for that uh, friendly phone call. It just came in a couple minutes ago. I appreciate the support, and I appreciate uh, the interest in the program. It means a whole lot to me to hear from uh, to people to let me uh, uh, know that you're listening and that, uh, that this stuff actually uh, rings with you and uh, and it's stuff that you that you're actually interested in hearing so anyway thanks again I appreciate that a whole lot all right um, we've got George Erickson coming up in just a minute uh, actually about 15 minutes or so um, but uh, I got a couple more stories I want to talk about here and they're sort of uh, related to uh, the topic that we're going to talk about tonight which is Atlantis and uh, sort of on a greater uh, scale uh, both of these stories that I'm going to mention right now basically just underlie the fact that I make uh, the point that I like to make on this program quite often is that we really don't know a whole lot about uh, some of the things, many of the things that have happened in the past. And uh, by the past, I mean the recent past on this planet. I'm not talking billions of years ago, millions of years ago. I'm talking uh, in the last few thousand years on this planet. There's still many, many things that we don't know about and that we don't understand. And uh, we're typically brought up to believe that we do, that we've got everything figured out. And the human mind and the human brain and the human body are capable of amazing things. And we're capable of investigating and learning and uh, discovering. But... We don't have all the answers yet. <clears throat> and the idea that we do precludes us from learning anything further. As soon as you think you've got everything figured out, well, then you, you cease to learn. And so the idea is, is that we never have everything fully figured out. This world is not to be figured out fully. Uh, it's the trip that's the important thing. It's the questions that we ask and the lessons that we learn along the way. It's a school of sorts. And uh, these next couple stories and this interview that comes up with George Erickson in just about 10 minutes sort of underlie that fact. So uh, right here, um, <clears throat> the title of the story says, Scientists from the University of Washington report an undersea lost city. When scientists on a research cruise in the Atlantic Ocean first stumbled across an underwater landscape of giant white towers and feathery spires, they only had time for a quick look around. We just got the teeniest glimpse at University of Washington oceanographer Deborah Kelly, who had led the voyage in the year 2000. Excited by the discovery of what looked like a new type of hydrothermal vent field, she organized a month-long return trip three years later to Lost City, which was what they named it. Um, in honor of the mythical world of Atlantis. In today's issue of the journal Science, Kelly and her colleagues report 
the results from that expedition, including the surprising find that geysers are populated by more than 65 types of creatures, tiny creatures, including transparent worms, water fleas, mats of bacteria that waft in the currents of kelp, and animals and microbes that thrive in scalding hot fluids nearly as caustic as Drano. Many seem to subsist on a diet of natural gas and hydrogen. It really changes our ideas of where life can live on this planet, Kelly said, and it really drives home that there's still a huge amount yet to be discovered in the oceans. Now, the story goes on a little bit further than that, but uh, that's, uh, uh, from, for my purposes on this program, that's enough. And Kelly hits it herself. She says that there's so much to learn still about our oceans. And if you extend the metaphor, what you realize that there's still so much to learn about our planet. There's still so much to learn about our atmosphere. There's still so much to learn about the dynamic relationships and interactions between the atmosphere and the surface and the inner workings of the planet. You know, uh, 10,000 miles down, 5,000 miles deep toward the core of our planet, nobody knows what's going on. Down at the, at, at the bottom of the Marianas Trench in the Atlantic Basin, it's 36,000 feet deep of ocean. Nobody knows what's going on down there. Okay? Now, this is our planet. And we discover things every day that blow our minds if we're looking. And uh, we think we understand the universe. Well, this should become apparent that our supposed understanding of the universe is about equal to our supposed understanding of our own planet, which is virtually nil. And these things are fractal in nature, and they're humbling and humiliating in a way. But those are the things that we need to feel in order to continue to learn about them. This idea, this arrogant, arrogant, hubristic idea that science has everything figured out and understands everything from the printing of paper to acupressure to the channeling of archangels well, this is, uh, this is ludicrous. And the world and the universe is a place that is so outrageously dynamic and diverse that to even imagine that we can contemplate it is uh, a joke in and of itself. So, let's figure out what's going on on our own planet first. Let's look with our own intelligence, with our own consciousness, at what's going on on our own planet. Let's really look at it. Let's really talk about it. Let's really push the envelope of communication to discuss what's happening here. You know, I mean, we can't even agree on 
what constitutes a good recipe for chocolate chip cookies, much less the nature of life in the universe. So we have a lot of work to do when it comes to language and communication and how we share our thoughts and ideas with our fellow men and women. And this is what it's all about. It's about communication. It's about language. And uh, as our great leader is so fond of saying, make no mistake about it. If these idiots, if these clowns do blow this place to smithereens, if the whole crap house does go up in flames, it will be because of the failure of language. Our failure to communicate with one another. Our failure to express and to understand what each other means. And this is what is happening on this planet. So, all right, uh, enough said about that. We got one more story here, and then we'll get to uh, uh, to this interview with George uh, with George Erickson. Okay, uh, this sort of sets it up pretty well here, actually. Um, this story says giant figures unearthed in Peru older than the Nazca Lions archaeologists say this is from Lima, Peru from the Associated Press Associated Propaganda maybe I should say anyway, sort of a fun story here from the AP archaeologists have discovered a group of figures scraped into the hills of Peru's southern coastal desert that are believed to predate the country's famous Nazca Lions about 50 giant figures were etched into the earth over an area of roughly 90 square miles near the city of Palpa, El Comercio newspaper reported. The drawings, which include human figures as well as animals such as birds, monkeys, and feline characters, are believed to have been created by members of the Paracas culture sometime between 600 and 100 B.C. Johnny Islas the director of the Andean Institute of Archaeological Studies told the newspaper, one prominent figure appears to represent the main deity of the Paracas culture that is commonly depicted on textiles and ceramics that date from that same period, Isla said. The recent discovered designs predate the country's famous Nazca lines that cover a 35-mile stretch of desert and have mystified scientists for many, many years. Uh, they were added to the United Nations Cultural Heritage List in 1994. The Nazca culture flourished between 50 B.C. and 600 A.D., Isla said. The lines, which also include pictographs of various animals, are one of Peru's top tourist attractions. About 80,000 tourists fly over the sites every year. So again, in Peru, in South America, we are... Uh, once again astounded by new information that was not available before information that bends the mind of the mainstream uh, researcher these these uh, 
these stories from the AP, they, 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 they describe in very short order what was discovered is what they describe. They never describe what the implications of these discoveries are. And one after another, they do the same thing, folks, as the UFOs do, Mr. Jennings. All of these things do the same thing. They erode faith in science as it has been sold to us for the last 400 years. And for the scientists out there, uh, don't take offense. For the true scientists out there, don't take offense to what I'm saying. Science in its true form is something that I fully believe in and I support. And I believe that, this, that, that the ideas that science was originally based upon, that being the glorification of God through the understanding of nature. This, I believe, was, was a noble ideal and a heartfelt ideal, but it turned into a demonic nightmare. And that's the part of science that I'm talking about right now, the part that has turned into religion, the part that has decided that it no longer needs to learn anymore, that it no longer needs to push forward, that it no longer needs to keep learning. This is the science that I have a problem with. And so for the scientists out there that are still asking questions, that are still pushing the envelope of research, of communication, of language, here's to you guys and girls. My hat's off, and I support you fully. To those of you in the scientific community that have decided that you will do nothing but carry on the status quo and maintain the paradigm as it stands, well, I have really nothing to say to you guys and girls. Do your thing. Enjoy it while it lasts. You're a dying breed. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. We'll be back in a minute with George Erickson talking about Atlantis on KOPN 89.5 FM. Back in a minute. That I get of late When I think about the cats Running the world with hate I say Something got to give Got the whole world fighting For the Texas teeth Got a letter for you I got a letter for me But the The kettle's leaking like a sieve Now there's a puddle on the floor There's a puddle in the sky The kettle's leaking so much The man burning my eyes Yeah can't we just throw that damn pile out? And on the subject of a throwing stuff away, I know some deaf men you can't hear a word we say, no matter, no matter how loud we do shout. Yeah, and I say, something gotta give right now. Something gotta give right now for you. Something gotta give right now, man. But something gotta give right now. I was reading 
newspaper just yesterday. Got the headlines reading, God bless the USA, and I thought, God bless everyone. God bless the people in New York when they were attacked. God bless the children being bound there in Iraq. God bless the goddamn junkie with the monkey on his back. God bless everybody under the sun. Back to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. I'm your host as always. And tonight my guest is author George Erickson. George has written a recent book called Atlantis in America, Navigators of the Ancient World. It's a book that he has co-written with Professor Ivar Zapp of the University of Costa Rica. George is an anthropologist who has published many different uh, works in the oral traditions of pre-Columbian Mesoamerican traditions and societies, and including a highly acclaimed book called Maria Sabina, Her Life and Chance. Mr. Erickson has a special that's going to be aired on the History Channel in early March, and we're fortunate enough to have him on the air tonight to talk a little bit about that uh, particular show and about his book, Atlantis in America, and anything else that we happen to decide to talk about. So uh, without further delay, here he is. Uh, thanks for being on Radio Orbit tonight, George. Welcome. Well, I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, good to have you, and uh, I'm glad we were able to uh, get this in under the wire uh, before they uh, before they aired that uh, uh, that program on the History Channel. And in fact, before we get too deeply into uh, uh, our whole talk, why don't why don't you um, tell us a little bit about that and when uh, when people should be watching for it? It's going to be titled uh, "The Lost Atlantis," and it will be shown as a, as an episode, uh, one-hour episode of um, Investigating History on the History Channel. The date's March 7th, and it will air uh, at 11 o'clock in the evening, Eastern Time and Pacific Time, 10 o'clock in Central uh, America, uh, Central parts of America, and at 9 o'clock on, uh, in the Mountain Zone. All right, incredible. That's, a, that's quite an accomplishment, actually, to get a production like this on 
on the History Channel. That's quite uh, actually quite an accomplishment, I think. It's not easy to get um, presented on those on, on that particular program. Well, this program is very professionally done. The people who uh, uh, Bill Curtis and his his crew and his producers um, have won several Emmys and a Peabody Award as well. And the photographer that they used, uh, Greg Erdeman, uh, is also an Emmy Award winner. And um, I was with them for a week in the Yucatan. Wow, I bet it was incredible. All right, well, we'll talk about that a little bit, uh, a little bit more later. So, um, okay, well, for the people who um, uh, who aren't familiar with your work, let's do, uh, if you don't mind, a little bit of background, just a little framework on who you are, where you came from, how you got interested in uh, archaeology and anthropology and paleontology and all of these things that you've been investigating over the years. Um, you've uh, you've done quite a bit of work in the past. Uh, that's de- dealt with uh, oral narratives and, and uh, indigenous myths that have been handed down from uh, generations. And you've done some work on some really interesting topics, including those, uh, those sort of mysterious stone spheres uh, uh, from Costa Rica. So um, why, why don't you give the audience a little bit, uh, a little bit of uh, information on, on w- how that all sort of uh, evolved, George? Yeah, I studied anthropology at the University of Michigan in, uh, in the 1960s and Eventually, my brother and I uh, launched a series of books um, on dealing with oral traditions, and the, the most uh, well-received uh, was probably Maria, Maria Sabina, her life and chance. Maria Sabina was a, a corandero, a shaman, a shamaness, who um, had, a, had access to an oral tradition that went back long before uh, Columbus. And um, this pre-Columbian knowledge was uh, part of the chants that she used in healing and curing people. Hmm. We wrote a book, of, uh, published a book about her, uh, her life, and uh, also included her chants, curing chants, and uh, it was very well received. And we did a series of other books, including one called Napoleama on a Nepalese wise woman and a book on the Swampy Cree Indian people of Canada called The Wishing Bone Cycle. Wow, incredible stuff. I'm actually very interested in the uh, uh, some of the... Um uh, indigenous traditions in South America and some of the shamanic traditions. I was heavily influenced by uh, Terence McKenna and his brother Dennis, um, uh, who have written and researched quite a bit on that over the years. In fact, I interviewed Dennis a few months ago, and uh, he's in Peru right now. I think he may uh, he may have just be getting back, but he's uh, on sort of a uh, uh, ethnobotanical adventure down there in the in the rainforest in Peru right now. But anyway, uh, incredibly interesting stuff. The whole uh, idea of the shamanic traditions and some some very very interesting and and valid information that's really uh, possibly beneficial to all of us. You know? Yeah, it's it's the it tendency is for anthropologists to uh, the anthropologists I know that I've studied under and that I've worked with. To look at oral traditions and say, listen, um, this may not be a fact-for-fact, fact, you know, an event-for-event event factual rendition when you're talking about gods moving things about the sky and and uh, devils living under volcanoes and uh, mm-hmm. people turning into coyotes and owls and, you know, uh, the various attributes that are given to um, spirits. You say, well, you know, that's pretty dubious. But what happens quite often is that somewhere in that tale, 
particularly when we're talking about creation myths mm -hmm. and myths of destruction, in that tale, there is a truth that comes out, that comes to the surface. And uh, <clears throat> some years ago, I kind of, got, a few years ago, probably 15, got away from anthropology <laughs> and started looking at uh, stone monuments. Mm. Uh, I got into the field of archaeology mm. and um, started looking to see if there were expression of these oral myths in stone. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the books of, uh, uh, looking in the Americas primarily, although I've traveled to India and China and so on, um, the what happens is that there are indications that things that are stated in the oral myths and the oral traditions of various people in Central Mesoamerica, uh, throughout the Americas, that these have an expression in stone, have a confirmation. And that's what I've been looking for. And um, since I've wandered from the field of anthropology into archaeology, I've discovered that your typical uh, archaeologist, and archaeology is a field of anthropology, but there's distinct. Uh, your typical archaeologist uh, doesn't believe anything that is, we would classify as an oral tradition or myth. They simply dismiss it, and they say, you know, we're going to get in there with our shovels and our picks and our brushes, and uh, we're going to look at pot sherds, and <clears throat> we're going to look at bones, and we're going to find out who these people were in this way. Right, by piecing and, all that together as opposed to, to combining that with the, with, with the oral tradition, for example. That's right. That's right. So as a result, um, you know, I've, I've certainly run into some resistance, and... Uh, been called a pseudoscientist and, and worse by um, some of the department heads of uh, archaeology in uh, the Cal University of California system. <laughs> some people that I've known for 20 or 25 years, you know, have all of a sudden popped up and said, you know, I always figured you were a new ager or something uh, like that, you know. And, uh, but the funny thing is, Atlantis in America has come out. Uh, we have found a lot more confirmation of what Ivar Zapp and I stated about the peopling of the Americas, and we found a lot more confirmation that there were diverse people here, uh, that uh, the concept of Atlantis as the center of a navigational culture could, in fact, have existed in the Americas because the story that you find in textbooks in junior high, high school, and college still is wrong. Uh, based, it's based on this concept of Beringia migration of peoples from uh, northeast uh, Siberia and Asia. Uh, people with um, short skulls, broad-faced, uh, people in the Americas about 11,500 years ago as hunter-gatherers, uh, Clovis Spear Point hunters. That these were the first Americans, and now we have found Americans who are older, right. who have long, narrow skulls, they're doliocephalic, they resemble Europeans or South Pacific Islanders, yes. Polynesians, much more yes. than they do uh, your uh, Mongoloid populations from Northeast Asia. So 
based on what were the new things that we're finding, I think that that's part of the reason that the History Channel got in contact with me, because the producer of this show, Bill Curtis, happened to be in uh, uh, Cozumel last summer when the INA, that's the, Institute of, the National Institute of Archaeology and History mm-hmm. in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, exhumed a, a body from um, an underwater cave it had been trapped there for over 12,000 years, and uh, this body turned out to be doliocephalic. Uh, that, that means that the cranial facial structure of the skeleton was that of a South Pacific Islander or, 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 or Euro- European, a Cro-Magnon. Really? And during the recent years, uh, well, Dr. Sylvia Gonzalez has found a, a woman that she calls a young woman near Mexico City that's been radiocarbon dated to 12,500 years ago, and she is doliocephalic. Hmm. Uh, the earliest human remains found in the Northwest are those of a man called now called Kennewick Man, sure, sure. dates to 9,300 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when they reconstructed his face, they got uh, this guy from Star Trek. And, and they said, you know, it looks very likely that this was a European. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also looks very likely that it would be a South Pacific Islander. Again, mm-hmm. they both have the long, narrow face uh, characteristic. So... Actually, the archaeologists who told me uh, a few years back that I was on the wrong track and that uh, what they were finding at sites, they didn't have any skeletons mm-hmm. that dated back 12,000 years ago until the last two years. Right, right. And now that we're getting them, we find that, uh, geez, they're not Paleo-Indians at all. Mm-hmm. They're a different type of people. Interesting. Very interesting. You know, in, in fact, uh, I was going to say before that... Uh, your story is a common one, uh, at least in the fact that at least at some time during your career when you decided to take off on this tangential uh, research that might have been a little bit uh, south of the mainstream, so to speak, that you've had you know, some, uh, some nasty things said about you here or there or whatever or haven't been treated uh, quite fairly by some of your peers. And I hear that from so many people. Uh, and you know what? For me anymore, it's almost a litmus test. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think unless unless people are are, are talking uh, smack about you, you're probably not doing research that's worth a damn. So uh, so I would consider that sort of complimentary in a weird way. And, uh, and you got a backhand way. I guess. Yeah, and and uh, I, I think it probably means you're doing something that's worthwhile. So uh, anyway, okay. Well, uh, that's an interesting little bit of background there. So so I guess uh, the question, the next question, we were almost there is. About about Atlantis and and is is Atlantis a real historical place? Is this uh, uh, or or is it a mythology that 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 is not based in reality? Is it just a fantasy, just some sort of a story? Uh, well, I think it is. A, I think it was a real place, and the reason I think so is because Plato repeatedly said, uh, wrote in the Critias and Timaeus, "This is fact, not fiction." This is passed on down to me uh, by my grandfather, Solon. Solon was one of the great lawgivers, one of the uh, you know, m- most respected uh, of the Greek um, political leaders yes, yes. before Plato. Plato himself uh, founded his own university in, in Athens, and his university was certainly... Everything was put at risk when he wrote about Atlantis, if Atlantis were, in fact, 
a fiction or a fantasy. And I don't think Plato um, would mislead people in this way. Now, there are some people who claim, well, Plato was trying to make a point, and he used uh, the myth of Atlantis to make the point about how Athenian uh, society should be. Actually, this is not the way Plato operated at all. Through the dialectic, uh, which was taught to him by Socrates, uh, they used a form of investigating truth that would preclude that sort of deception. Another reason for believing in Atlantis is that uh, the myth is not limited to Plato. In the central part of the Americas, and I go down there every winter to Belize and Guatemala and the Yucatan of Mexico, and <clears throat> I investigate Mayan myths and, and their belief that there was a god named Kukulkan who sailed across the sea thousands of years ago, bringing the uh, arts of civilization, uh, language, lawmaking, but primarily uh, mathematics and astronomy. And they used these arts in building their pyramids. And the stone evidence of an advanced culture going back thousands of years in the central part of America is, is fairly overwhelming. I mean, I, mm -hmm. it overwhelms me. And I believe that if this was not Atlantis, it was very something very similar to Atlantis. Okay. George, is, is the, the Kukulkan uh, tradition the same as uh, Quetzalcoatl, or are, the, or are those different? Quetzalcoatl and Kukulkan are, are basically the same. Okay. Uh, Quetzalcoatl is, a, is the Toltec. Myth, ah, okay. And, uh, and Kukulkan was the Maya. Later adopted by the, uh, the warlike Aztecs, who mm -hmm, mm -hmm. were late, uh, late arrivals in uh, Mesoamerica. Kukulkan was the god for the Maya people. And he's very similar to the Inca and pre-Incan peoples, Contiki. Uh, Interesting. Okay. Again, these people, all these creation myths talk about an early people coming across the sea with the arts of civilization. They never talk about people walking over ice sheets to, <laughs> to <laughs> found civilization, as they call it. So I've uh, I've just followed up on on what the myths have said, and there, in the same area where we find the speakers today, in Belize, um, and in Guatemala, and in the Yucatan, you know they're they're talking about a culture that we do find evidences of in stone monuments, in perfect stone monuments like the Temple of Kukulkan at uh, Chichen Itza. This is a focal part of the. Uh, Local part of the program, the Lost Atlantis. Uh, we spent a day and a half at Chichen Itza in about uh, a heat index of about 122 degrees, and I was standing in front of a camera and uh, trying not to sweat too much <laughs> and or to melt away. Now, now uh, Chichen Itza is is in in the Yucatan area of of Mexico. Is that right? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah, central Yucatan region. Okay, all right. Well, um. I guess uh, one of my questions is that over the years, I've seen so many stories uh, about Atlantis uh, and different claims that it was here or there 
in the Aegean, in Ireland. I read a story recently that there's a researcher that thinks that now Ireland was where Atlantis is. There's one now uh, in, from the New Zealand Her- Herald recently talking about that Atlantis may have been off Cyprus. We hear about Bimini and uh, lots of different, uh, even Antarctica, I think I heard uh, somebody talk about one time. But at any rate, there are lots of different ideas about um, about it. And let's talk maybe a little bit about a, a little bit about some of the detail about why you guys believe that there's good evidence uh for it in in uh, the historical mesoamerican region well when i met ivar zap about 13 years ago he had already been studying the stone spheres of costa rica he'd been studying them for about 20 years the thing about the stone spheres that is the most remarkable uh, they're remarkable, and some of them are seven feet in diameter and weigh 18 tons and uh, are perfectly spherical to within two centimeters, um, some of the large ones. Uh, the remarkable thing is the precision needed to construct something like this because our own technology, under our own technology, we could not have constructed a sphere so perfect until the discovery uh, of the laser. So huh. people thousands of years ago in the central part of the Americas were knowledgeable to an extent that uh, something was lost. You know, mm-hmm. humanity mm-hmm. dumbed down for mm-hmm. <laughs> for a few thousand years. Mm-hmm. And whether we're starting to wise up again or not uh, is still in debate. But... Um, a, a lot of things are pointing now that there's a lot of a lot of knowledge exploding around the world. No a question. Lot of coming together, so no that's qu- a no very hopeful sign. No question. The spheres of Costa Rica have uh, probably are not as famous as they should be, considering how extraordinary they are. Well, let's let's talk well, about them just for a, just for a minute, and and let me ask you a question about it. They're, now they are they're dif- different sizes, first of all. Yeah, there are many different sizes. And they appear to be machined, or do they appear to be, you know, in other words... They do not appear to be machined, but, um, you know, there are no marks. There are no chisel marks. There are no sanding marks. They're, they're just perfect spheres. You know, like I say, possibly by a laser. But, right, right. Well, you know, the... there, are, there are... There's a lot of controversy here. There are a lot of archaeologists who've examined them who said... You know, you can do this. You can do this by sanding. You can do this by bobbing them in water. There are all kinds of ways that you could make a perfect sphere like that. But when you're talking about something that's seven feet in diameter hmm. and is solid granite, right? Um, well, make a little mistake, and you're not going to have a perfect sphere. Yeah, that to me, um, I, I, for for the people that say it's so easy, I'd like to see them replicated. I think uh, if 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 it's if it's if it's something that's not not that difficult to do. Um, right, and you know they make these little attempts at replicating them on a very small level, right, and they even right. fail at that. And they say, "Well, if we had a little more time, right, right. Uh, we would have done better." Now, the same you know, it's true of the, of the great stones, uh, the interior stones of the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt. Sure, I mean, sure. there's just simply no, way no crane in the world today that could lift those into place. Right, and put yet, them at uh, the end somehow of somehow these people were supposed to have rolled them on logs, right, and <laughs> and fitted them together perfectly. Right. Uh, they knew something we don't. Yeah, and I think I think you've hit it there. And I think that any engineer worth his salt or her salt, when confronted with those 
problems, those questions in, in, the, in the true light of their own intelligence and consciousness, I think they'll look at you in the eye and say, I have no way of knowing how the hell they did yeah. this. <laughs> you know? yeah. All right, you're listening to Radio Orbit. This is KOPN. This is also Mike Hagan. I'm your host every week. And uh, we're listening to an interview I did a couple weeks ago with George Erickson talking about Atlantis. We'll be back in just a few minutes to continue that. In the meantime, take a break. Go get a glass of water or a beer or whatever it is you do. And uh, listen to Liz Fair uh, from Exile in Guyville, a song called uh, The Divorce Song. We'll be back in a minute with uh, more from George Erickson and Atlantis on Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to it, KOPN 89.5 FM. Back in a minute.
That's Ruby from Saltpeter. I decided we'd sneak that in. Uh, I had time for one more song after that Liz Fairtune. Uh, so that was Ruby, yeah. One of my favorite female artists. And I'm going to be a lot, uh, playing a lot of tunes from women this month. And uh, she's a Scottish artist who totally rocks. And her name is Ruby, and that's from Saltpeter. And that song was called uh, Tiny Meat. Before that, we had uh, Liz Fair from Exile in, Exile in Guyville, and uh, that song was called. Uh, it was the divorce song, actually. So, okay, this is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Let's get back to my interview with George Erickson right here. We're talking about Atlantis and uh, uh, Perk Up. Here we go that maybe we can talk about just for a minute. You know, there's lots of, of, of ideas that, you know, we think of technology through our own cultural lens uh, right now. We, have, we assume that technology has to be something that is built with the hands, has transistors, is made primarily out of glasses, metals, and uh, plastics, and, uh, and you push a button and then something happens. But technology uh, does not necessarily have to be something like that in other words there are there are, there are many uh ideas and discussions about technologies that were different maybe way back when that may not have been so physical as far as something that the human being might build but maybe were perhaps more mental technologies you know, we have our own strain of technology but uh, the people who have understood our technology the best have understood the limitations of the human mind uh, Thomas Edison uh, is perhaps the greatest inventor of the last 150 years or so, and uh, he has has said uh, he said in the past uh, we we don't know one millionth of what there is to know. And when he said we, he wasn't talking about his little group at Menlo Park, right. a group of inventors working on all this stuff. He was talking collectively. We as humankind don't know one millionth of what there is to know. Right, right. Um, he was able to figure out how to, you know, use electricity, uh, invent the light bulb, uh, do all this kinds of stuff. And, and yeah, I have a distinct impression that he feels that uh, 
electricity is something we stumbled upon. Mm-hmm. We could have stumbled upon something different. Right, right. And it's still there to be stumbled upon. Sure, there's lots of things. I, I, I make the analogy sometimes to people about, uh, uh, because I do radio, I use this as an analogy quite a bit, but I always say that, you know, there's there are radio signals everywhere, and they're coursing throughout your body right now. And just because your tuner isn't tuned to that particular frequency doesn't mean that that... Uh, that wave isn't still there and still moving, and it's just a matter of tuning into it uh, in order to recognize that it is there. Right. And 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 that that uh, that metaphor can be extended to many many different uh, uh, areas right now. So amazing that when you look at all the things, you know, talking about the pyramids again, talking about building structures uh, outside of Cusco in Peru in the Andes, there's a uh, what they call a fortress, but it isn't really. It's a, called Saxaihuama, and it has some stones that weigh over 200,000 pounds and that are fitted in with other stones to make up a wall, uh, fitting together 13 to 16 faucets. Uh, You know, it's like someone, uh, it's like a dentist making a bridge for you, fitting it into your teeth, and if it doesn't fit right, then he pulls it back out and grinds it down a little bit too, but... When you're talking about a 200,000-pound stone, <laughs> if they didn't grind it partic- to the to the preciseness uh, that it now has on the very first try, how would you keep lifting up this 200,000-pound oh, stone yeah. and, and polishing it down to make it fit? In other words, our technology just doesn't have the imagination to figure out how this was built. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's just it's just an utter mystery about how how some of those stones uh, were managed. And again, not just in that part of the world. It's happened in many many different parts of the world where uh, the 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 sophistication of of these fits, the way the stones fit together, and the way that they're put where they're put, just seems to defy at least common modern day technology which which but but yet they're standing there staring you in the face they're yeah. there and uh, they and you know i have a hard time believing that they had a bunch of slaves that worked on them for hundreds of you know hundreds of years it seems like it almost looks too easy you know it's like wow they had they had a really cool easy way to do this yeah and i found that in in mesoamerica that the earliest uh, level of construction at most sites you know and most of the sites there have several levels of construction. Um, at Tikal and at Teotihuacan, the earliest levels have the largest and most precisely built blocks. Huh. The worst construction wow, is by the Aztecs. And of course, the Aztecs only got in the Central Valley of Mexico, or took over the Central Valley of Mexico, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. 200 years before um, um, that guy, the conquistadors arrived. Yeah, Cortez and the fellow showed up. Cortez, yeah. right, right. And uh, they were a pretty warlike people and a pretty brutal people, and they they did. Uh, I think that they practiced sacrifice a lot more than their predecessors had. Uh, although sacrifice was part of the Americas, right, uh, and part of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it has been done all over the world. Yes, but anyhow, name back to the Aztec. When you look at Aztec construction, it's rocks about the size of a football or sometimes the size of a small grapefruit, and they're just put together with a whole lot of mortar. And when you look at the Toltec constructions, which they are built over, the Toltecs, you know, had better building 
techniques. And then if you look under the Toltec level, two structures that were built by people that uh, were called Teotihuacanos because we don't know who they were, but they lived at Teotihuacan, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, then we're seeing levels of construction that are precise and often require no mortar because they fit perfectly, the blocks fit perfectly. We go back in time, we find that uh, uh, rather than a progression from a more primitive to a more sophisticated, we go back in time, we go from a more primitive here to a more sophisticated in the deep past. Interesting, and that's uh, you know counterintuitive to what most people believe or what most people would think uh, to be reasonable, but uh, there's certainly evidence uh, of that, and I think that it leads into another question, and, and that I, I guess that question deals with the impasse between science and mythology. You know, science, for the most part, we sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, science, for the most part, discredits myth, sort of discounts mythology. However, there's quite a bit of evidence, in my opinion, and I think in yours as well, that mythology, um, certain mythologies that have been written, are quite accurate histories of real uh, events that took place on this planet. Yes. Uh, the proof of that occurs in, in many examples. A really great one has come up recently, uh, recorded by Vine Deloria, who wrote a book called uh, Red Earth, White Lies. Hmm. Um, in this book, Vine Deloria tells the story of the Klamath people, and, and this is not just Vine Delor uh, Deloria, uh, who is an American Indian but, and has a Ph.D., and teaches at the university, and but he has uh, his research in this matter has uh, been duplicated by uh, David Hurst Thomas and published in a book called Skull Wars, which is about the discovery of Kennewick Man and so on. But the story of the Klamath, if I can, if I can tell it briefly, um, I'll try. Yeah, please do, please do. Um, in the 1870s, a soldier, a lieutenant who was stationed um, in a fort near near the Clam where the Klamath Indians lived in southern Oregon, became aware of the fact that no Klamath Indian would go anywhere near um, Crater Lake. And Crater Lake, if you've ever been there, is just a beautiful, intense blue, and it's up in the mountains, and quite often there's snow and there. Beautiful mountains, green trees, and this crystal blue water. Okay. So the lieutenant couldn't figure out why Klamath Indians, when you know, if they even heard the mention of Crater Lake, would hold their head down and say, "We we can't go there." Right. And he found a um, chief who told him a story, and he said, "This is a story that my grandfather was told by his grandfather." And it was a time when this crater lake was a mountain, a volcano called Mount Manzana. And Mount Manzana was the home to an evil spirit. And this evil spirit fell in love with a beautiful Indian princess and kidnapped her and took her into the mountain. This enraged the spirit that lived in Mount Shasta, 100 miles to the south. The spirit in Mount Shasta was a good spirit, and 
the Mount Shasta erupted and hurled stones at Mount Manzama. Huh. Mount Manzama, in turn, uh, erupts and hurls stones at Mount Shasta. And the story goes on that eventually the princess is saved, and Mount Manzama, in a fit of absolute you know, rage, blows his top. The spirit has to go deep down under the mountain, and the top having been blown off the mountain, the volcano as a volcano no longer exists, and the waters from rains fill in and create the lake. But the Klamath Indians believed if you stared into that lake, you could possibly see the evil spirit that was there, and he could capture your soul. That sounds pretty far-fetched. But subsequently, in the late 1920s, the U.S. Geological Survey worked for 12 years to try to put together what had happened to form Crater Lake. What they found was that about 7,800 years ago, it had been a mountain, Hmm. which they call Mount Manzama, and that this mountain had been almost the same height as Mount Shasta in the region of 14,000 feet. Wow. With the top 3,500 feet of the mountain were blown off in one explosion, which was probably 50 times as great as the one at Mount St. Helens of about 15 years ago. What they also discovered was, though, that prior to that, there is, was a record written in rock of a great deal of activity between Mount Shasta and Mount Manzama, where they would have explosions and volcanic eruptions which were either at the same time or that followed each other very closely. My gosh. In fact, when they published their report, their record of what happened there was pretty much the same as what the Klamath Indians said happened there. The U.S. geological team had no idea of what the Klamath Indians had said. They were basically scientists reading the record the rocks and they turned out to be the same as what the Klamath Indian chief said with this exception the Klamath Indian chief believed that it was his grandfather's grandfather's tale his grandfather's grandfather may have witnessed it but it had been 7,800 years so this shows you the durability of myth Um, and maybe we should just say oral tradition because the word myth has been degraded. I agree. To the extent that when you say it, you're saying myths, so that's a lie. Now, this, these myths are true. They're great carriers of the truth. Yep, I fully agree with you. And, uh, and from the ancient Mesoamerican myths to the Egyptian mythology to the Native American mythology to the Chinese mythology, there's incredible things to be learned from, from all around the world. And, and, and so many of them, as we're, as we're learning, are complementary to one another and they really tell a story that uh, uh, we might not all be as different as everybody seems to think that we are yeah there are, there are over a hundred versions of the great flood myth yep all over the whole planet I mean, all that, over the world yeah so that's certainly something that uh, that most uh, historical cultures can agree upon uh, that it happened uh, that, that there was some sort of a uh, a global catastrophic event that involved a whole lot of water, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and there's uh, there's evidence evidence of it everywhere. So, 
for a long time the I call them the gradualists at universities, the conformists uh, mm. to the gr gradual evolution of everything right. uh, theory. Um, these people said, well, yeah, sure, they had some floods. You know, it rained and rained, and, you know, floods happen. They happen today. But the Guaymas Indians of northwestern Mexico say that in the Great Flood, a green wall of water came over all of the towns in the countryside and the fields and went up to the top of the oh, mountains wow. where two people at the very peak of the mountain in the cave survived. Now, the thing about the Guaymas Indians, they live about 100 miles inland in Sonora. And if the floods had been the type of flood that we're getting in Southern California right now with rains, uh, the water would have been brown. The water would have been brown with dirt. But when they say a green mound of water came, they're talking about the ocean. They're talking about something that forced the ocean 100 miles inland. Yep. Yep, that is one of many examples for sure, and and I think that uh, I think that it's an outdated idea. Uh, this idea of gradual uh, change and gradual evolution certainly gradual change does take place, but there is also these punctuation marks throughout history where uh, nature uh, throws sharp turns and uh, very very catastrophic and very, very violent events that change everything in a very, very short period of time. You know, we've got, uh, um, I was a, quite a, a fan of the early writings of Emanuel Velikovsky, uh, who wrote uh, quite a bit about um, some of the uh, mammoths and uh, uh, animals that were found up in the Arctic tundra that were basically flash-frozen at some point in history, literally uh, with with buttercups still in their mouths that they hadn't even chewed uh, to swallow, so they literally died in a in an instant almost. Uh, and these things just uh, again they're in the historical record, but they just uh, because they don't fit the, uh, the 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 typical ideas, they they pretty much just get thrown out with 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 the bathwater, you know. Well, at about the same time the mammoths uh, disappeared. Uh, the dire wolf, which was the largest wolf to ever live in the Americas, disappeared. Hmm. The saber-toothed tiger disappeared. Mastodons disappeared. Uh, the giant sloth disappeared. Uh, the American horse, which uh, the horse was originally uh, an American animal. It developed here in the Americas, migrated uh, to other parts of the world, but disappeared from the Americas about uh, 12,000 years ago. Is that right? The same time that Plato gave to the destruction of Atlantis. So it looks like some very big event did occur. Now, uh, I read Velikovsky years ago, and, and he thought that it had to be um, almost like a collision of planets or right. a near collision, right, right. as I recall. Right. And it doesn't have to be anything that big at all. A meteor half mile across striking the Earth will destroy about you know um, all of the population in in the for hundreds of miles uh, from the spot in which it hits, and particularly if it hits in the water, it would put off a tsunami that, when it hit the coast, would be over uh, three quarters of a mile high by sure. most estimations. That would go a hundred miles inland. 
that would be a green wall of water that could destroy the Guaymas uh, peoples. The introduction of something like a half-mile-wide meteor happens, you know, more often than most people think. <laughs> because we can't track half-mile-wide meteors. We can see Ceres, so, you know, it's 400 miles across. Right. We know where it is all the time. Right. But there are so many smaller uh, meteors, uh, asteroids that become meteors, that we have no idea where they are right now. Yeah. And, and if they happen to go in toward the, an orbit toward the sun and then pick up speed, you know, the slingshot effect of coming close to the sun and being thrown back out again, it's doubly dangerous because they'll be traveling about four times as fast as they would be normally in space. Uh, they'd be moving probably close to 100,000 miles an hour they passed very close to the sun, and we could never see them right. because if they're coming out of the sun, we can't. You can't see a speck coming out of the sun, right. and that's right. what a half mile wide uh, asteroid would be. We really say, you know, well, we've <laughs> we've mapped twelve percent of the sky now, and we know where a lot of the uh, earth crossing uh, uh, potential earth crossing asteroids are, and we know where some are. But we don't know. We don't know about a lot of them. You know, George, I, I I giggled there for a minute because I do um, I do a segment on my program every week that I call Space Weather, and one of the things that I talk about is this idea of potentially hazardous asteroids or near Earth objects and this sort of thing. And uh, I always make a point of of telling my listeners that the ones that have been identified are not the ones to be concerned with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, I I. I uh, I absolutely uh, understand and uh, and and uh, uh, agree with what you're saying. It's that uh, you know there's no way of knowing how many actually exist. So yeah, you know when they discover um, um, a planetoid uh, almost the size of Pluto uh, recently, right. everyone was a little surprised. Right, Sedna. So now it, yeah. somehow we knew because we can see them from a distance using Hubble, mm -hmm. we know that most solar systems extend out, you know, 400 astronomical units from the center. Mm -hmm. uh, or, they, or they extend out 2,000 astronomical units. And, and the assumption has always been that our own solar system went as far as Pluto, and then there was a Kuiper belt with some comets, and then it was nothing. Right. So they assumed that our own solar system was atypical, that, uh, you know, we, there wasn't as much matter. Which is really ironic. That, that plane from which the, everything, the planets and the suns and so on are formed. And now it turns out that probably we're just like every other solar system. We're about, there's 20 times more distance to the extent of our solar system and there are a lot of objects out there. There could even be Earth-sized objects out there if they're out there far enough sure. that we have not yet found. Sure. Yep, the, uh, the, the, the universe uh, on the big scale and our solar system just on the small scale are, are, are such diverse and dynamic places, and, and, and anybody 
uh, and I, again, I mention this all the time. I, late, lately, I've had quite a bone to, pick, bone to pick in general with science because I'm so fed up with this, uh, with this arrogance and hubristic attitude that says we have everything figured out and that we know everything. And uh, the examples show up every day uh, that, 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 that prove the counterpoint, that, that, that there are constantly... Uh, the science is continuously confounded and surprised by new and uh, unexpected data and information, and they're always trying to backpedal and and uh, and sort of reverse engineer their theories to to make them fit this uh, this new data that uh, that keeps throwing them curveballs. But uh, the bottom line is that we're all uh, speculating to a certain degree, and. Um, and and the the question is about the question, not about having all the answers, but about out there searching and trying to find out what's going on. All right, hi, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. It's just about four o'clock in the morning on uh, Sunday, the sixth of April, and uh, you're listening to an interview that I did with George Erickson, a paleontologist and anthropologist who's done a lot of work. Uh, studying the old myth of Atlantis, and we're talking about that right now. And we'll be back and talk about it a little bit more in just a few minutes. Let's take a break. We're going to play some music, and uh, we'll be back uh, in just a few minutes. KOPN 89.5 FM. This is Radio Orbit, and uh, this is the Afghan Wigs from Gentlemen. The song is called My Curse. We'll be back in a minute with George Erickson on Radio Orbit. <laughs>
All right, yeah, I love it. Afghan wigs. That was my curse from Gentlemen. Great CD from maybe uh, 12, 15 years ago. All right, this is Mike Hagan. It's just the top of the hour, four o'clock on Sunday, March 6th. On uh, oh, four o'clock in the morning, in the AM, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and we're in the middle of an interview I did with George Erickson, talking about Atlantis. And uh, for people interested in this uh, topic and in George's book, uh, two things. You can go to the website at Atlantis in America, just like it sounds, atlantisinamerica.com, and you can find out uh, information about George and his book. And uh, also there's a special that will be on tomorrow night, or, uh, yeah, I guess it's tomorrow night, about 35 hours from now, actually. Uh, on the History Channel, and it's called The Lost Atlantis, and it will feature George Erickson, the guy that you're listening to right now. And so if you're really interested in, in what you hear tonight, uh, uh, get an earful, and then tomorrow night watch that special on the History Channel and take in whatever you get from that. And then send me an email and say what you think or questions that you might have that may have arisen from this new information that you might find interesting. And then we'll go from there and try to move it forward. So, okay, uh, in the meantime, it is, like I said, just a little bit after 4 o'clock. Let's get right, right, right back to this, uh, this interview here with George Erickson, and we'll do about 20 minutes or so, have another little break, and then finish things up toward the end of the hour. Okay, uh, we'll have that in just a little while. In the meantime, back to it. George Erickson, Atlantis. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Yeah, you know, the the early excavators of the sites like uh, Tikal in, in Guatemala and so on, when they excavated them, they immediately claimed, uh, well, this is the oldest and greatest site, you know, the biggest, uh, largest pyramids, um, so on and so forth. It's the oldest site, and um, that's what Sylvanus Morley said about uh, Tikal. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that there are sites with bigger pyramids, and there are sites that are 3,000 years older, that incontrovertibly dated to 3,000 years older, like Cueo in Belize. Now, why would the site that he chose to excavate happen to be the oldest, the biggest, the grandest, and have the tallest pyramids? Right. Because he excavated it, that's why. Right, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, okay, listen, th since we're talking about time, well, then, you know, and we've, we've, we've been talking about the flood. Now, th two questions then. Is the, the flood that we've been talking about that, that seems to be documented in many different cultures uh, around the world, is this the event that we think uh, was the, uh, the finish of the Atlantean? Civilization, or 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 do we think I believe that so? Okay, and 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 let's. Where do you place that plus or minus in history? Well, Plato placed it at nine thousand years before his time, and his time was about two thousand four hundred years ago. Okay. So if we follow Plato, uh, we're saying that it was eleven thousand four hundred years ago. Eleven thousand four hundred years ago corresponds to the time when. Uh, the Pleistocene ended, and the Pleistocene animals, mammoths, American giraffes, American camels, 
uh, saber-toothed tigers disappeared okay. from the face of the, uh, of the earth. Okay. Um, these um, creatures disappeared. Sea levels worldwide rose 380 feet. And any coastal cities in the Americas, which I would I believe would have constituted Atlantis, were swallowed up by the rising seas. This event is, of course, you know, one of the versions, one of the versions of what happened during the flood. But it is the Mayan version. The Mayan version of what happened is that Hunapah, a warrior, shot an arrow at a fixed star in the sky and struck it, and that caused um, chaos in the heavens and a disorder in the, in the fixed stars of the sky, and that all of the planets, and this is, this is uh, depicted pictorially in the uh, Dresden Codex of the Mayan people, one of the few surviving books. Mm -hmm. um, the planet Venus, and the symbol for the planet Venus, the symbol for the planet Mars, the symbol for the planet Jupiter, the symbol for the moon, and for the sun are all pouring water down on the earth at the same time in this pictorial version of the great flood and what it means is that you know something that happened on earth caused a perturbation in the skies and it was the heavens who rained the destructive floods upon the earth Hmm. But they say so, that, uh, that 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 there was something on Earth that triggered that. Well, and that's what Plato said too. He said that the Atlanteans had the greatest civilization in the world, and that they lived in a, a virtual lush and tropical paradise. And remember, uh, eleven thousand five hundred years ago, worldwide temperatures were about twenty-seven degrees cooler than they are now. Okay. It kind of rules out Ireland. Uh, it definitely rules out Antarctica, or even uh, Charles Hapgood's belief that Antarctica may have been 2,000 miles closer to the equator before a crust displacement. Even if it was, it would have been a really cold place. Right. Uh, it would have been like um, Argentina, uh, southern Argentina. The size of Atlantis rules out anything in the Mediterranean. So. I think that Atlantis was the coastal regions of the Americas and the sunken islands of the Caribbean. You mentioned Bimini early, earlier. All of the, uh, what they call the Bahama Banks, are less than 400 feet deep. That entire area would have been an island the size of, uh, you know, what, what is now the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Right. So, in other words, in, uh, during the Pleistocene, before that sea level rise, those areas were probably above the surface. And if there were cities, if there was a developed civilization in the Americas, it would have developed at, at, at coastal cities. And Atlantis is described as a coastal city and a navigational capital. Mm -hmm. So, where is Atlantis? Well, I think most of it is underwater. But the remnants, I think, are the survivors who in myth, arrived at the shores of the Yucatan and came with the law-giving abilities of mathematics, 
the Mayan are known as the the Maya known as the first people who had the concept of zero. It doesn't mean that they had it first. It could have been brought to them by even earlier people. Sure, sure. Okay, well then let's uh, um, let me see. Okay, uh, the spheres. We were talking about the spheres of Costa Rica. If they, they certainly seem to be. Uh, some sort of a mystery still, uh, although they exist, there are question marks as to uh, their origins and how they were made and all that sort of stuff. But apparently we see, uh, along with these things, faces of peoples that seem to be unexpected, right? Semitic peoples, like you said, um, people with beards and uh, mustaches and and and. and Images of of people that shouldn't be found there. So, it, where, how did the, if assuming that these that these things were representations of real people, how did these people get there then? They sailed. They were navigators. Atlantis was supposed to be the navigational center of the world, and we find people in in uh, we find replicas of people in stone in the Americas that are definitely Negroid, for example, in the Veracruz region, uh, at Leventa, for example. There are stone heads that are even bigger than the spheres in Costa Rica, but they are not perfect spheres. They are replications of the heads of Negro people. Now, oh. and we know that some of these um, go back uh, stratigraphically. We could, we could date... Uh, them to about 3,000 to 3,500 years ago. They were part of what's known as the Olmec culture. Mm -hmm. And the Olmecs appear to me to be people from Africa. Now, how hard is it to get from Africa to the Americas? Well, in 1956, Dr. Elaine Bombard got in a virtual bathtub five feet long with a string with a hook attached to it and a little bucket for uh, collecting rainwater. And six weeks later, he arrived at uh, Trinidad in right? the Caribbean. Wow. Uh, the sea lanes are the, the sea currents are uh, virtual conveyor belts. Huh. Uh, Thor Heyerdahl did the same thing in 19. Uh, actually, he, he inspired this. He did it uh, in 1948 sure. when he got the raft Contiki sure. built, uh, just like all Peruvians were building their balsa rafts, and wrote it with his crew 4,000 miles across the South Pacific. Right, I remember. Um, the numbers of people, of the diverse people, you know, we have uh, photographs of, uh, of uh, in the book Atlantis in America, we have photographs of not only of these Negro-looking people who had kinky beards, some of them, who had uh, braided hair and back, you know, definitely nothing, no characteristics that resemble the present-day Maya or Zapotec or Toltec peoples right. who are in, in Mesoamerica. Okay. Uh, but we have Chinese faces mm -hmm. at Copan, mm -hmm. uh, a Chinese face with a, a headdress that has the trunks of an elephant on either side. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, with on, on that note, I happen to have uh, a relationship with, with some... Uh, uh, Lakota uh, Native American peoples back in the Colorado. I lived in Colorado for some time, and uh, I got to know a Hopi uh, elder 
whose name was Grandfather Martin, and a number of the Hopi, in my estimation, look Oriental. There's, <laughs> there's definitely some sort of uh, uh, an, an Oriental uh, line that's that, that's tied into their bloodline. I know there is because I've seen, I can see it, and I and I think I also see it in their language a little bit. Well, you know, there's um, uh, there are markers now. Uh, that are found in the DNA that show that some American Indians have uh, this uh, uh, a marker. I can't think of the name of it right now. I'm uh, sad to say. Have a marker that establishes them as having at least part of their lineage from Europe, huh. and other American Indians do not have it. And that's how a group can, but I you was know, just looking for a little information on it. It's, it's uh, something passed through the mitochondria um, uh, power packs, you know. Right, so, right, right. So a genetic marker that we can actually see, okay. Yeah. And there are four major markers in most uh, American Indians, but there is a fifth one called Howl Group 10 that can only be traced to Europe. Huh. That complicates things. Sure does. And it points to the fact that our history is much more complicated than, you know, the gradualists would have it appear. Right. There was not one migration to the Americas, and it did not happen at one time. Uh, there have been many migrations at many different times. And some of these migrations had to have been from Europe. This is what De Dennis Stanford of the Smithsonian now holds, that... Uh, the Clovis-like spheres were just simply a uh, continuation of the bifacial uh, scraping techniques used by the people of France uh, 16,000 years ago. Hmm. And that there must have been migrations from Europe to the Americas at that time. Amazing. The only way you could do it was by sea. And the fact that this Hala Group 10 has shown up in some Indian populations and not in others shows that there was some mixing of European and Indians that goes back thousands of years. Let me ask you a question, and, and uh, if, 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 it, if it's not relevant, just tell me that. T tell me that. But, I'm, but I'm thinking about Easter Island when you mentioned these big... Um, stone carvings of faces and heads. Is, is, does that have any, any place here, or is that uh, a, a, a separate and uh, uh, an independent mystery? Well, they're all separate and independent in a way, but you know, those heads, uh, if you go to Tijuanaco uh, in Bolivia, mm -hmm. you're going to find statues that have that very, very uh, flat looking face, very stern. <laughs> I mean, the the expression oh. and and the shape of the skull is absolutely the same wow. in Tijuanaco in the Andes Mountains in Bolivia as it is in Easter Island. And if you go to a place called Tula, about 70 miles outside of Mexico City, you will find these stone warriors 16 feet in height that have the same face. My gosh. And also appear to be holding some sort of a contraption, uh, you know, possibly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, let your imagination go, right, right. a laser gun right. uh, in one hand mm -hmm. at their side. They're holding something that looks very much like, like a uh, 
Star Wars type, uh, Star Trek type gun. Amazing, you know, and and, and again, that's not uh, without precedent. There are many interesting images uh, carved into stone in some of these historical. Um, places in Egypt in particular I'm thinking of the temple at Abydos where there are flying contraptions that are carved down onto that ceiling uh, that are some 200 feet uh, above the ground I think and, and uh, thousands of years old carvings that look like Sikorsky helicopters and, uh, and uh, uh, gravitational land rover devices like Luke Skywalker would have flown around in you know so uh yeah, definitely um, in the historical record there are these big question marks. So, unbelievable. Hey, um, George, you mentioned sort of briefly off the air about that there might be civilizations that, that exhibit continuity with Atlantis, such as the Maya. What, what, what do you mean by continuity? Well, the continuity is one of the attributes of the Atlanteans, according to Plato, was the great knowledge of astronomy and mathematics. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Plato really emphasized uh, those two sciences. Okay. Um, the Mayan people were very, very knowledgeable. As I mentioned before, uh, the first known people to have the concept of zero, um, the so that they could count, you know, into the millions. Whereas, you know, right. uh, I just a matter of adding zeros. But for people who did not have the concept of zero, that might be hard for us to imagine. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Was, it was a different world mathematically. Sure, sure. There's that, and then there's the ability that the Mayans had to construct such precise uh, pyramids as the Temple of Kukulkan, which has 91 steps on each of its four sides and one central step, 91 times 4 plus 1 being... 365, oh. they're describing the 365 days of the year. Right. Each side of the pyramid faces a cardinal direction so precisely that on the northwest uh, facing conjunction of two sides, they put a serpentine figure, basically a, a, a snake with a head with feathers, the feathered serpent, which is sometimes called Quetzalcoatl, sometimes called Kukulkan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's actually a god, though it looks very fierce, like like a serpent. And on September 21st and then on March 21st, in the vernal and uh, fall and vernal spring spring equinoxes, uh, the sun will describe that serpent. It will light up one level after another until nine levels of the undulating serpent are described going down the side of the pyramid and the last thing lit up is the head. And that happens between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on March 21st and September 21st and no other time during the year. Must be astounding so when they to built watch. this pyramid in the first place before they moved 100 million tons of rock. <laughs> <laughs> they had a precise knowledge of exactly where everything was going to be. Incredible. Now, the Mayans had that, and the Atlanteans, by reputation, had that. And there are uh, the Mayan mythology of that, the Mayan belief that life is cyclical, that one age gives way to another age. Yes. 
and that something catastrophic happens when one age ends, but another one is, is born. Uh, this is the same concept of the cyclical nature of things. What happened to Atlantis? What happened to Atlantis? All right, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit on 89.5 FM, and we're listening to an interview with George Erickson. George has a special that will be airing on the History Channel tomorrow night, on Monday night. Uh, check the schedule, but I think it's at 9 o'clock our time here in mid-Missouri. But uh, if you're listening to this over the web, check your local listings and uh, and check it out. All right, uh, let's uh, take a short break here, and we'll be back in a minute with George Erickson. We'll finish up that interview. And uh, in the meantime, enjoy this. This is Poe from Hello. It's called Beautiful Girl. Back in a minute. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. Someone's got to hear this. Beautiful mother Frozen 
All right, that was Poe on KOPN Radio Orbit. We're going to get right back to my interview with George Erickson right now. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit. The Egyptians told Solon, you know, there are variations in the sky. Things happen in the sky and in the heavens. And then on Earth, things are changed, and civilizations rise, and civilizations fall, yes. and are buried, and are forgotten. And a more primitive people follows, who don't know what the people knew before. Hmm. This is the basic story of Atlantis. This is the basic story of the Maya. We're now in the fifth age, according to the Maya people. And the current age began 3,113 years ago. And it's going to go for 5,125 years. And it will end precisely on December 21st, 2012. Now, I so we got six and a half, diet. six and a half, six and a half years from now. Uh, oh God, I was thinking it was more like eight. Two thousand five, yeah. Two thousand twelve. Okay, so it's 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 actually about the yeah, it's it's under seven years. No, it's seven and a half years, I guess. Yeah. Seven and a half years until okay. So all right, my first question about that is, do we know that because of all the calendrics and all the changes to the calendars that have happened over the years, and the uh, trying to reconcile the Gregorian calendar with uh, the Maya and the Mayan system, um, how how sure are we that December twenty first does of twenty twelve does correlate to what they were considering? the end of their particular this particular cycle yeah well the Mayan calendar is uh, this is the long count of the Mayan calendar mm -hmm. uh, there's a sacred calendar as well but the uh, the long count is it's pretty well established it, okay. it does not depend on any correlation with the Gregorian calendar which is separate and much less accurate right very very inaccurate so the now, does that mean that we all should run for a cave on December 21st, 2012? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm living here in the mountains in Arizona, and I'm already doing some scouting. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's uh, the thing that the Mayans will tell you is that there will be an immediate rebirth and that a better age will ensue. Um, the problem is that that might be true for five or six percent of us walking the face of the earth right uh -huh. now, but for the other ones, they might just be part of the old age and right. be swept out with it. You know, right. uh, will it happen precisely on that date? Your guess is as good as mine, right. I would think. But maybe the Mayan guess is better. Maybe it's based on something they know about how the Earth moves through uh, the solar system and how the solar system moves through the galaxy, right. and how things seem to happen in a cycle. In other words, there are times when we're going to be moving through parts of the galaxy where there's a lot more dust right, right, right. Uh, than we are currently experiencing. And there are going to be times when we're moving through areas of the galaxy where there's a lot more debris. Uh, or there might be times when we're moving through part of the galaxy where there's a passing, you know, dark star. Sure. That's another theory. Sure. That would upset the comets in the Oort cloud and send them in uh, willy-nilly flinging toward the sun and toward Jupiter and those that Jupiter doesn't protect us from at the Earth. Right, right. Um, we know, I know this, 
their knowledge goes back a lot further than knowledge in uh, the Mediterranean world because there have been too many instances where knowledge has just been lost to people. Uh, the people who built the first pyramids, the oldest pyramids of Egypt, they had a knowledge that the pyramid builders who were building pyramids 2,000 years later did not have. True. Because the later pyramids were far inferior. And it appears that the same thing happened in Mesoamerica. Like you were saying earlier, it appears that, again, counterintuitively, that the earliest uh, uh, constructions, the earliest architecture, had the most highly skilled craftsmanship. And as we get uh, later uh, in the ages toward the Aztec uh, uh, lines, that things become... So it's almost as if uh, the, the knowledge was imparted, and then over time it began to get diluted again and get lost. Yeah, and I would think that, um, you know, you talk about punctuation. I would think that the loss of knowledge happens at points of punctuation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, times of cataclysm and disaster. Right. And then, you know, when it's over, everyone says, well, you know, I used to drive an automobile, but uh, now I, I don't even know how to make steel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, how can I make a car? Right, right. I, I don't know how a cylinder should work, you know. Oh boy, you know it's uh, it, it 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 sure. Well, you know it's it's an amazing thing this topic of of 2012 because it it you know you know regardless of of whether the exact date is uh, you know is the date. If you look around the world, I'm sort of a generalist and and I, I look at lots of different things and I look at ancient mysteries and I look at current geopolitical situations and I look at energy and I look at lots of different things. And I tell you what, from my perspective, again, whether that date is exactly right or not, I don't know. But I tell you what, it sure feels about right. Uh, it sure feels like 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 something is trying to peek its way through uh, into our subconscious or or from our subconscious even, and it may be this sort of long-term memory of. Uh, of something that's happened in the past, like you say, these cyclical events. But uh, but certainly there are many many things going on uh, that that seem to point to something in the not too distant future that is going to be a major shift of something. And what I hear from the, the modern Maya, the Maya who have are still in the Yucatan, is that they feel that the Earth is suffering. Mm -hmm. They feel that the Earth has been polluted. Um, it has been misused. That the seas have been, you know, used as a toilet. Yeah. Uh, the reefs have been destroyed, and uh, the the Mayan are, are people who have used the sea very much in the Caribbean area. They feel that the earth has been wounded, and it's hard. This is there's this real fine point of this causality. If we're hurtling through space, and it's been decided through Mayan calendars and mathematics that every so often we're going to encounter these stones, then we could be we could be living a pure life, not polluting and destroying and marring our earth. And we'd still get hit. <laughs> right, right. But there's right. also the other thing is that, that the Mayan believe that the earth itself has been wounded and that the heavens will set that right. So there's a there's a causality there, which is a separate factor. Yes, yes. Uh, one is scientific, one is mythic, and both might be true. Right, right. They're not. They're, they're not. Uh, uh, they're they're mutually exclusive, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. 
Very interesting. Man, I tell you what. Well, we're, uh, mo- most of us will, uh, will live to see uh, that date come and maybe go, and uh, we'll have to see what it brings. Um, and uh, it sure is, it sure is an interesting time uh, to be to be alive. I tell you that much, George. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about the Maya. How did what happened to them? Where you know there there, there are all these mysteries about where did the Maya go? People say they just disappeared, um, and their civilization was sort of uh, collapsing or something. Or uh, I'm well, not sure exactly. Well, they did collapse, but and, and, and the the reasons are the same. Just about. Every time a civilization disappears, and we, in Easter Island, let's go back there. Um, that one time was a tropical island uh, with trees everywhere, um, fruits. Um, now it's barren. It's not a tree on Easter Island. Why? Well, man's uh, population evolved on that island. Uh, and could not be siphoned off because of the, the, the isolation of the island. Maybe they had forgotten the navigation that had brought them there in the first place. Maybe they became too timid. Who knows? They stayed there, and they, you know, they filled up the island like rabbits, fill up a yard, a garden. And pretty soon, in order to get the fuel that they needed for fires, they had to cut down. Someone cut down the last tree. I guess there have been some trees planted since then, but basically it's a barren island. What happened to most of the Mayan cities that have been studied in detail, like Copan, is that their populations grew, and they prospered, and people came from the countryside into the cities. So we had city-states in Mesoamerica around 900 A.D., about 1,100 years ago, with populations of 150,000 people at Caracol, wow. 120,000 at Tikal, wow. possibly 80,000 at Copan. And these are not isolated. I mean, they were all over the place. Coba had over 60,000 people. Chichen Itza had probably about 50 to 60,000 people. Um, hundreds of other sites. A great population. They were probably, um, probably in the country of Belize 2,000 years ago there were 4 million people today there are 200,000 people these civilizations collapsed because of their farming techniques which were intensive uh, particularly in the growing of corn but also beans and peppers and other crops and the fact that they set themselves up to be so dependent on the environment being kind to them. Hmm. The rain's coming. Mm-hmm. And when the rain stopped, when drought occurred in these areas, the water became polluted and the crops failed and the civilization disappeared. Um, it's something that man has gone through in other parts of the world, but definitely it happened in the Americas. That we became too dependent on what I would call a kind environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when it became unkind, uh, it was too devastating. People just had, simply had to leave. Okay. Probably there was a lot of warfare involved, too. When things go bad, people have a tendency to get short-tempered and uh, blame each other, you know. 
Yep, and when resources get scarce, they get uh, they get more interested in their own welfare as opposed to the other guy. So, so there's a lesson in this maybe for all of us too. Well, no, I think like, there's a lesson because um, it, it sure it sure sounds like 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 a familiar tale sort of. Right. Um, if we are so arrogant to uh, to tax nature to its limits uh, in hopes that it will just always perform to our behalf without giving any consideration to it, uh, without being prepared for nature to perhaps not always be so kind to us, mm -hmm. then we're going to have the same problems. Ours probably is going to take the form of, uh, uh, of increased sea levels, just, like, just exactly what happened to Atlantis and what happened to the world 11,500 years ago. And it's probably going to happen because of uh, this global warming. Uh, you know, 95% of the scientists in the world uh, agree that the global warming is happening and that it is irreversible. Right. And 5% of them are employed by the Bush administration to tell the world that, <laughs> hey, global warming doesn't exist. Right. right. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not picking on Bush particularly, but I am saying that... Uh, it, People throughout the world, if they treat our natural world in such a way that it beleaguers our natural world, it's going to have repercussions. Yeah. And I think if the, uh, the Maya and the indigenous cultures in general, if, if there's any wisdom to be uh, taken and appreciated from their historical ideas and beliefs, it's that possibly that nature isn't mute and nature isn't uh, just this non-unconscious uh, entity that's just there for us, as you say, but nature, on the other hand, is alive. Well, and the Earth is a living being. Right. Life. And, 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 and the sky is a living being. The sure, stars. Sure. It's all part of life. It's the cosmos. Right. And if we, and if we, can, if we start to consider those ideas, well, then all of a sudden intentionality becomes really important because then we can start to extend intentionality to those beings as well. And, uh, and then, well, then, then, thing, then, the, then the ideas that the Maya had in this, uh, this cosmic uh, spanking. Um, makes a little bit more sense, and yes. and uh, and certainly the the, the 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 cycles don't lie, George. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, we were since we're, we're sort of at the end of the uh, approaching the end of the program here, and I'll, I'll let you close out in a few minutes here. But let me uh, tell you something that I've been meaning to mention. There's a, a friend of mine uh, who I interviewed um, a few months ago. His name is Dr. Paul Laviolette, and uh, his he's an astrophysicist, and his particular theory has to do with uh, what he calls galactic core outbursts and um, uh, he theorizes that uh, again on a cyclical uh, time frame that every so often uh, the energetic core of the Milky Way and and, and most galaxies typical uh, galaxies have um, uh, an outburst, an explosion of sorts, and that when that happens, uh, it uh, certainly causes um, 
catastrophic events to occur throughout throughout the galaxy. Now he watches things like gamma ray bursts and uh, magnetars and cosmic ray monitors and all this sort of stuff. But uh, um, but the bottom line is that he uh, places the last um, uh, occurrence of this particular event right about the same time frame, right about the same time frame as you between. He doesn't go quite uh, as accurate, but he says between twelve and fourteen thousand years or so. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And the Mayans believe that uh, some. This is not universal, but the, some of them uh, who are now writing believe that the year two thousand and twelve uh, describes a time when the Earth will pass through the ecliptic of the galaxy, in other words, the center, It'd just be like crossing the equator for a moon crossing the equator of the Earth. Right, right. Um, John, Ma- John Major Jenkins. Among some scientists, that at this ecliptic, um, there is less protection from some of these forces, like the gamma rays, the you know the effects of uh, black holes and consequences of um, explosions of novas and debris right. in space. Right, right, right. And that this might tie it. Okay. Right, and we have the uh, we have the idea from again from the Hopi about the Kachina, the blue star, uh lots of uh lots of these these uh, ideas that seem to somehow tie in to one another. So, wow, incredible incredible interesting stuff, George. So, all right, well, I tell you what, we are uh, just about uh out of time here, but let's uh, finish up with, um, let's give out some information. We haven't done this yet. Uh, first of all, uh, the book, how can people get the book? Uh, do we have a website address or an 800 number or something like yeah. that? The book is Atlantis in America, Navigators of the Ancient World, and it's available through Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon and your usual sources. Unfortunately, there aren't as many independent bookstores metaphysical bookstores in the country as there once were, but yeah. uh, this is the type of bookstore you would find it at, so just to depend on your, your city. The website is www.atlantisinamerica.com with no spaces. Perfect. And that'll get you to me if you wanted to get a book from me, signed or something. Uh, feel free to contact me through the uh, website and the email address there. And it also describes some tours that we run. We run tours for the University of Pennsylvania, and we're setting up some for universities here in Arizona, such as Thunderbird University. Um, We've run some trips for the uh, University of California system, UC Berkeley and UCLA. So we have um, the ability to run larger trips with groups of students, but basically we run pretty small groups. Keep it sort of intimate, and uh, and uh, people, you know, find out, find those things that they're looking for right. uh, at the sites in in the Yucatan and in Belize and in Guatemala. Well, I tell you, you know, these uh, these ancient sites for anybody who's been there uh, to any of them, uh, and there are many, many of them around the world. To anybody who's been to these places and walked upon the land and cast their own shadow on these places uh, many many people are drawn in and struck by them and want to learn more about them because they really do have uh, sort of a captivating effect in uh, in many many ways 
Yeah, and if, if you go on a stock tour where they've got someone describing um, uh, priests uh, cutting out the, the right. beating heart and flinging it down the stairs of the pyramid and describing the pyramid of Kukal Khan as a ceremonial center, well, if it were just a ceremonial center, how could it be so mathematically precise in its construction? Why would you build something like that if you were such a primitive that you spent most of your time cutting out bleeding arts, you know? And why would you live in such a city? And why would that city, you know, have 60,000 people? Why would Tikal have 120,000 people? Certainly they wouldn't be drawn in by the uh, chance that... Uh, some priest is going to grab them <laughs> and take them up and sacrifice them. Right. So there's a lot of hooey right. that goes on right. at these sites. And the sites are so marvelous. But uh, if, you see, if you hear some of the things the guides say, you know, just uh, uh, <laughs> are unbelievable. Wow. And a lot of people want to believe just that. Just like the Catholic Church, when they came here with the mm. uh, missionaries, wanted to have a reason have a justification right. for what they did to the Toltec and Mayan people, destroying their civilization, right. bringing them disease and death, and that they, they had pointed toward sacrifice. So that's something that's still being emphasized uh, 400 years after after Columbus. Yep, I think that we're. I think that the, uh, the the tour bus mentality that you mentioned is 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 nothing more than an extension of of, of that same uh, mentality uh, that you talked about uh, 400 years ago. So, okay, well, hey, listen, what about uh, the History Channel show? I know that they changed the schedule a little bit. So, when is that going to air now? It's March 7th. Uh, investigating history. The program is called The Lost Atlantis. Uh, my point of view is going to be shown, and I know that they have some others, but we spent a week in uh, the Yucatan shooting, so I'm, I haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> right. They don't, don't give me a, an advanced copy, but I think it's going to be, uh, uh, it was a lot of fun to shoot, and I think it'll be uh, a very, very educational for most people to watch. All right. Well, I and well done because, uh, as I said before, these are your Emmy Award winners who produced this. Right. That's right. uh, March seventh, eleven p.m in Eastern and Pacific Time, 10 o'clock in Chicago and Central Time, and uh, in the mountain states here, it would be uh, at 9 o'clock in the evening. All right, perfect. Well, I look forward to watching that myself, and it will be interesting uh, for anybody who got to listen to this program beforehand uh, and then uh, uh, watch that uh, with uh, in light of the new information that they heard on this show as well. So, all right, wonderful. Okay, let's uh, one last thing. What's what, what's what's the future uh, hold? What what are you working on right now? You got any new projects, or are you continuing the same line, or what's what's oh, happening? I've, I've got about 400 pages of notes toward a new book that I haven't uh, put quite all together yet. Okay. What's the I'm nature of that? Or can, more I, information. can I, can I ask every you? Year I'm making another trip into. Uh, uh, Mayan and Toltec country. Okay, so this book will also deal with uh, with the Atlantis and the Mesoamerican connections. Yes, it will, and it it will. Um, you know, the the 400 pages of notes is mainly stuff that has just confirmed what I wrote about the last time. Okay, so, all right. And there's quite a lot of it, so I'm, I'm very pleased with that. All right. Well, you should be really proud, George. You've got uh, uh, you've got some some things to be really proud of. I think uh, 
Uh, I think that the, the book is awesome, and I look forward to seeing the, uh, the special uh, on the History Channel. And let's mention the website one more time. That is www.atlantisinamerica.com. No spaces in there. And um, uh, you'll also be able to get to uh, George's site uh, from my site at www.radioorbit.com. So, okay, well, George, uh, that, that about does it. Let's uh, say goodbye, and, uh, you know, we'll, um, we'll have to stay in touch. And uh, uh, maybe when you're ready uh, to release your new book or if you have uh, anything else that's uh, interesting that comes up, if you'd like to chat again, we'll, uh, we'll have to get together and do another program uh, down the road here. So. Okay, Mike. Well, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, George? Okay, great. All right, take care. All right, hi, this is Mike Hayden. You've been listening to Radio Orbit for the last three hours on KOPN. It's just a few minutes before 5 o'clock, and uh, we just finished up an interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with George Erickson, uh, an anthropologist and paleontologist who's interested in the lost continent and the lost history of Atlantis. I hope you enjoyed the program tonight. We'll be back again a week from now, and uh, next week my guest will be Rick Strassman, Dr. Rick Strassman, actually, the uh, author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and uh, a fascinating interview that I did with Rick, uh, again, about a week and a half ago that I'll be airing next week. So I hope you'll join me for that uh, program. And uh, Carol Greenspan will be coming up in just a few minutes to do Jewish Spectrum. And before that, we'll finish things off here with a little bit of music ourselves, but... uh, Uh, A quick thank you to the people that called um, and kept me awake while we were playing that, uh, the interview that just just aired. Thanks uh, for listening and thanks for giving me a call to say hi. And I'll hear you guys again next week, hopefully, and you will hear me. So, all right, Radio Orbit, KOPN, 89.5 FM. Stick around for Carol Greenspan. She'll be here in just a minute. In the meantime, this is Mini Driver from uh, her most recent CD and the song is called Everything in My Pocket talk to you soon next week Mike Hagan Radio Orbit take care